Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And Simone, we are continuing our fast march to the end of the year, the end of 2020. And as we promised our listeners, we're you know going out with the bang. We have some really great episodes uh, to end the year with, including today's episode, which I'm really excited about. Jacques, it's like we didn't do our homework at all in November, and and now we're cramming for exams, <laughs> and we're trying to get all of our best shows in before the end of the year. Exactly. We took our hiatus, and now it's like, uh-oh, we need to get, get this done and, and get some good shows. But no, we're these are uh, folks we've been wanting to talk to for a long time, um, and so I'm really excited that we'll be able to bring some of these great episodes to our listeners before the end of the year. Do you have your holiday plans in place, Simone? Uh, no. <laughs> Do have I finished my um, gift buying? No. <laughs> I, I put up a tree this weekend, which I'll consider that a win for this holiday season, right? So very nice. Also, you decorated your house outside too. That's very yeah, lovely. A little bit of lights and a wreath, you know, just kind of give add a little bit of uh, of joy to the neighborhood, um, which I think you know I'll, our neighbors appreciate. So. Well, I am so excited to introduce our guest for today, um, certainly a man who needs no introduction to most of you. Um, I kind of grew up watching him on on uh, on local television, but also have had the pleasure uh, recently of working with him on a number of, of different stories that he's reported on, and, and that is John Snell, WVUE Fox 8 anchor. Um, just a little bit about John for those who may want some background, but he's worked in the TV news business in New Orleans since 1983. During that time, he's reported on virtually every major story in southeastern Louisiana, from the 1984 World's Fair to the collapse of the oil industry, the Edwin Edwards trial, hurricanes, and their aftermath. Um, since the two, 2005 storms, John has focused on South Louisiana's storm protection, including natural features such as barrier islands, marsh, and swamps. Um, his 2012 documentary, Disappearing Defenses, won two national honors, an Edward R. Murrow Award from the Radio Television Television Digital News Directors Association, and a distinguished Sigma Delta Chi Award from the Society of Professional Journalists. Um, John has a bachelor's degree in mass communications from Southern Illinois University, and in his spare time, he enjoys bicycling and photography. So we're going to get to all of that and more. But first, welcome to Delta Dispatches, John. Hey there, guys. If, if you could avoid Jacques saying that you grew up watching me, that <laughs> we can edit that out. <laughs> I never hear that. No, that's very nice of you. Oh no, we'll we'll, we'll fix that in post. But yeah, I, that all is to say, you are uh, well well earned. Uh, you know, uh, news uh, legend and someone that we all admire and respect very much here. So. John, I know 2020 has been a doozy for all of us, to say the least. Um, how are you doing and any reflections as we close out the year? Well, I mean, I'm doing OK. I think um, from the standpoint of, of the coast, you know, we're, we're trying to socially distance here uh, in the newsroom and, and kind of adapt to how we cover stories. Uh, covering the coast has been a little difficult this year because, you know, in, in the beginning, people were reluctant to do the sort of field trips that I know Simone has organized, for example. And. And so it's kind of hard to, to get out there. Uh, I think news gathering and news storytelling has probably changed forever. Uh, we, most of it will be the, the traditional way, but I think that probably gone forever uh, as, a, as a fallback is the phone interview. You'll, you'll be doing 
Zoom interviews and FaceTimes and whatever not, people I think have gotten used to that. So um, ju just when I thought, you know, the industry had it advanced uh, to a certain degree, um, we went off in a different direction. It's, it's been a fascinating year adapting and, and doing things that we never thought we could we could do. We have producers who still to this day occasionally will produce their entire newscast from home and never come in the building. And it's on a virtual you know, software widget of some sort that allows them to act as if they are in the building. Yeah, I've, I've been able to be in studio with you before. And my husband mentioned that when I told him you'd be on the show today. And I was like, I, I don't think anybody's been in the studio with you guys, except for maybe some of the doctors or, you know, Dr. Griggs or something that's been an expert. Right. So that, that is, that's very interesting that, that that has changed so much for you guys and, and how you do the news. We, we've had two people actually who are non-employees and non-maintenance or service people uh, who've been in the building. Doc Griggs regularly, um, he is a health educator and does regularly uh, encounter patients in the normal practice sense. And Mike Sherman, our political analyst, was here the night of the election and the day after. And that is it. Two of the hottest news stories right. <laughs> this well, year, for sure. The, the defining stories of 2020, right. Well, John, speaking of news stories, uh, if you don't mind, we did see that you have some good news recently that you announced on Facebook. Um, Simone and I were both pleased to see good news on our timelines for once. So do you care to share how uh, your 2020 ended with such a great um, announcement? See, I'm, I wasn't going to get into that when you said, how's my 2020? Because I think in 2020, you make your own happiness. And and um, I asked um, Anita to do me the honor of being my wife a couple weekends ago. And she said, yes. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that Jacques, in, in, in addition to all of her other fine traits, she's a bird lover. Oh my gosh. Her stock just skyrocketed with Jacques. <laughs> so 2020 has, uh, 2020 has uh, gone out with a bang. Well, congratulations to both of you. And, and we all hope it's the start of, you know, more and much more good news for us all to come. Um, and, you know, hey, lots of birding opportunities out there in 2021 <laughs> for sure. I like the way John did that, right? So he 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 got his 20, saved 2020. That's what Blake Shelton said about Marion Gretzis Bonnie. He saved his 2020, but then he gave himself something to do in the next couple, <laughs> next year or whatever. So I like that. Good strategy, John. Good strategy. You, you make your own happiness in 2020. Make your own happiness for sure. So, John, we touched on, you know, kind of your background in the intro of the show, but you've been reporting on so many stories here in southeastern uh, Louisiana for, for a while. You're a native of Illinois, if I'm not mistaken, but you're essentially, you know, a New Orleans Orleanian at this point, right? More than um, than a lot of folks. So what brought you down to New Orleans and, you know, kind of any memories you have from the time early, you know, in your career when you were first reporting on some of these stories here? Um, in the region. Well, I'm as you pointed out, I came for a job. I had a one-year contract and a two-year plan. And um, I re I remember I don't remember what the story was, but I, I you know I I didn't plan to to stay in New Orleans. I I just fell in love with it, as you know people do. It's it's sort of a place that's that's it's either for you or it's not. Um, and I I don't know four or five months after I started I was driving across the Crescent City Connection one day on the way to work I lived on the West Bank at the time and there was some story on the news that just 
really stirred my passion about whatever whatever the issue was. And I stopped and thought to myself as I was about halfway across the bridge, what is going on here? Um, and um, uh, over time, I had some opportunities to leave and just and just chose not to. I just decided I, I wanted to be a part of this place. I think I think if you're going to live your life, you may as well do it in an interesting place. And <laughs> I this agree. Is certainly that. I agree. I hope I hope that moment wasn't an Edwin Edwards trial. I heard that when no, John no, it was, I have no idea. Right there, I have no idea what the story was. I it had something to do with the city and and something to do with the the civics of the city. And I just I, I started feeling kind of not the sort of detached professionalism that you feel that you're always you know you try to keep other feelings in a box, but just to myself started having a kind of a strong reaction to whatever was being said and and. You know, at the age of twenty-four, thought to myself, "What, what is going on here?" I, you mentioned this, uh, John, a little bit when we, well, mostly when we were talking about how journalism's changed. I know um, that uh, I'm a Nichols grad, and I know that you spoke to some of the journalism students last year as part of their right. uh, Jubilee series. And so, what, what did you tell students that are coming up? And did you tell them about how journalism's changed, or did you tell them about things in journalism that? are always true at its core? I, I want to say it was a couple years ago, but I, I don't remember exactly. Journalism at its core, you know, hasn't, um, hasn't changed. I think that, uh, you know, we have a lot of challenges in journalism. There, there's a lot of, uh, there are credibility issues, especially in a politically charged year, such as we've had here. Uh, but I think that, you know, in our company, we, our company owns um, hundred plus television stations around, around the country now. And the, the directive from the top is that we won't take sides. We'll do it in the traditional way. And so in that sense, you know, we're not like one of the cable networks that, that have, uh, I'm sorry to say, kind of a business model that, that sort of takes one side or, or the other. We, um, I think the driving force, obviously, technology is so different. It's part of the challenge of, of what we do. One of the things we like about Coastal Stories um, to go off on a delta with you, as Anita calls it, when I go off on a sidetrack, um, is that it's a story that's that's um, different than you might see otherwise. It's important to cover the day's news and then offer people something different than they normally would get. You know, when I got in the business, if, if you wanted to know who won the the Cubs Dodgers game that might have ended at 11:30 New Orleans time or midnight New Orleans time, you had to get up the next morning and listen to the radio or watch television. Maybe that night, if you were lucky, if it ended in time. Now you just look at your phone or maybe even your watch, depending. And Right, you get an alert. So sometimes, you know, if, if some something happens dramatic in the world, people know about it within minutes sometimes, as opposed to we know about it hours before. So, I mean, that's the driving uh, difference together with the technology. Technology is a great help in some ways. Um, you know, we can show live um, images of some dramatic spot news story of fire or some natural disaster or something happening in, in Africa or in Asia uh, as it's happening, certainly around the country, uh, in ways that it would have taken a couple of days maybe to get video back, even when I started. So obviously the technology is the big difference. Yeah, and John, I mean, as you were speaking, it really made me think about the importance of uh, local journalism, the importance of local TV journalism, you know, particularly as it relates to um, issues around our coast, right? Simone and I try to emphasize that as much as possible that, you know, some of these places and some of these issues are not always super accessible, right? And having a visual 
reporting or visual storytelling to kind of help people understand the issues is so it's so important. You more than anyone have done, you know, amazing job on reporting on uh, Louisiana's coastal issues for your Coast and Crisis series. So can you tell us a little bit about what, you know, kind of inspired you to first take on that, um, you know, beat and really want to focus in on on Louisiana's coastal crisis? Well, you know, you mentioned our our first uh, documentary uh, that we did in 2012, and uh, I posted a link to that online. And one of my friends on Facebook from college said, wow, I had no idea that was happening. Think about that. Uh, and the 2,000 square miles of land that we've lost since 1932, which is the, the rough estimate, and how dramatic that is. And if you put that in a box of, you know, a, a county or a parish and, and, and made it all grouped in one spot, how dramatic that would be. So there are, um, that, that's one element of it. I, I was always fascinated in the, st the story and then started, um, I was actually assigned after Katrina to be, you, you be the guy that goes tell, and tells people how we're going to protect the hurricane threat and how we'll build the hurricane risk reduction system. And then I think the, the coastline is a natural extension of that, together with kind of an interest that I've always had uh, in in the outdoors and in, in the natural world. So it, it's sort of after the, the levees got built, not that there aren't stories being done about levees in St. John Parish, St. James Parish, and, and Lafouche and other areas, Terrebonne, where there are still improvements today. But I think one part of it is this, this whole concept of multiple lines of defense. There are limits to how much the coast can help. Uh, it can be overplayed if you're not careful, um, but that's part of it. And I think, you know, the story is something that the general storyline is something that appeals to a, a lot of folks, both in the the South Shore area of Jefferson and Orleans who, who care about the outdoors, who maybe are sportsmen or hunters or whatever, fishermen, uh, together with more environmentally minded folks who, you know, bird lovers, whatever. And then on top of that, the public at large, I think, is is very keyed into how their communities are going to be protected. And I think that by by doing these stories, you speak to a part of the audience that isn't always served, including places like Terrebonne and and Lafouche parishes and Plaquemines parishes, where uh, there's an extra level of importance to this because they're the Gulf of Mexico is sort of you know in their front yard. Yeah, the, the coast in crisis is, is more like a feature story, right? You know, where you just take the time and you take, um, you know, you take great care to, to talk about a story more. They're usually longer, which is great for us, right? Because it's hard to tell that story um, in, a, in a short amount of time, no matter how long you followed it or what you know about it. So thinking about that series, what was what's a favorite story that you've covered? And it doesn't even have to necessarily be positive, but what's maybe one of the stories that you covered in the in the series that impacted you the most? And then can you talk about how you find stories to think about, right? I mean, you must get approached all the time about different coastal things happening. So how do you pick which ones you, what rabbit hole you go down? Well, I don't know if this is my um, favorite story necessarily, but it's my favorite recent story. Um, when, the, <laughs> when, the BP, when the BP oil spill uh, happened, we would frequently go out of the Myrtle Grove Arena down the Wilkinson Canal in, in Plaquemines Parish, about 20 miles south of Belchase. About the first half of that trip, as you guys know, uh, is um, you know through land and down a canal, and then you're out in Barataria Bay, and there's a little camp down there built after um, after Betsy, they've had camps on that site 
going back to something like 1905. And I would pass this camp, which is now on an island. It didn't used to be, but it is now. And I would look over and say, do you know who owns that? And gosh, I'd like to do a story on that sometime. And I got off the air one day in September, and this fellow Christian Amity had sent me an email. Hey, I heard you're interested in this camp. I'm I'm redoing it. So we did a story about the, uh, I think it's a story of perseverance. It's a story of one man's utter devotion to trying to save his little piece of paradise. And when I tell you that he's got a little bit of land left. This island, which used to be part of a peninsula, might be the size of six carports maybe now that this camp sits on. And uh, he's he's built himself uh, a little seawall. Uh, like uh, well, he's the mode. Yeah, he's the middle of the mode. Yeah. But, um, so I, I think that story kind of comes to mind. And, and uh, Christian, I will say, I teased him that he got an answer about five minutes after he sent the email to me. So, so that one—that's one that comes to mind. I think stories uh, in a more serious vein about the, um, the the master plan overall for the coast, and how um, and how the diversion projects, for example, fit into it. The idea that we'll cut a hole in the levee and send the Mississippi River off and try to mimic the power of the river to build land. I, I must confess to you that in in the 2012 documentary, I, I think that the references to that were a little cartoonish on my part. I think there's a, you know, this is America where stakeholders have a say. And some of the, um, even though it was award winning, you know, as they say, um, I heard a lot of feedback over the next couple of years from commercial fishermen and others who are skeptical. Um, and and we tried to both follow the science in our reporting and, and what the experts are saying. And while at the same time, giving voice to people who are stakeholders about you know, whether these things should be built. We're talking about $2 billion in the, the two biggest projects. So we haven't done as much this year because as you know, it's those projects are sort of, certainly not on the back burner, but they're, they're deep in the malaise of the, and the maze of the regulatory process. So there hasn't been as much news made, but I, I think that's a, a fascinating area where they're talking about building, especially these two projects, Mid-Breton and Mid-Beretaria, on the, the two banks of the river in, in Plankman's Parish. Um, it, you know, we're, when, you, when you're the government and you're building something for $2 billion, that invites scrutiny. And I, I think that's an area where we, we try to, to the extent that we can, focus some attention. I think it's, I mean, to your point about even the camp, one thing that that's just clear with all of this, all the reporting is just how interconnected issues of coastal land loss, coastal restoration are to so many aspects of our lives, of our jobs, you know, of communities, history, ecology, you know, and, and something like that camp, or whether it's, you know, even the church on the Blind River, you know, there's just these places that represent so much more in terms of uh, the environment, the history, the people that live there, the work that they do or, or did in the past. And so I think that's why, you know, these um, these stories and the reporting and the, the lens that you bring to it, whether it's on a project as, as grand as a sediment diversion or all the way down to kind of an individual camp and the, the family that lived in that camp over time is so important and interesting. So, um, you know, You've done a lot of reporting on the Queen Bess Island and the restoration project. And I know you were out on Queen Bess with Simone and, and myself and others to actually see it once it was completed. Um, that reporting uh, was recognized by the Press Club of New Orleans um, 
as was other of your reporting. But I'm, I'm curious, I mean, John, you've covered so many different angles of coastal land loss, right? And Simone and I are always trying to elevate the story to audiences in Louisiana, audiences nationally in DC. And, you know, there has been some national attention on Louisiana's land loss crisis, certainly, but we could always use more. So what would your pitch be, you know, to those journalists that, you know, whether they're in Louisiana or whether they're outside of Louisiana about why this is such an important issue and how there are so many different angles that um, are available to cover it? Well, I mean, there's so much, you know, if you look at kind of the question and the preface of it that you throw out there, Jacques, you're really talking about Louisiana's culture. If you are somebody who lives in New Orleans who who isn't particularly a hiker and doesn't really think about birds and notice that they have bright colors and they're not all little black birds, you know, and um, and if you, if, you know, if you don't think about when the pelicans are in Lake Pontchartrain and you don't really connect to the coast, um, you can hit people and reach them when you start talking about seafood, for example, which, you know, people that might be one person's connection to the coast. There are just so many. It, Louisiana without its coastal parishes is not the same place. It simply isn't. So that from, you know, we see that. And I think that um, I, I'm I'm always when my competition goes out and does stories in, in a sort of perverse way, I'm kind of pleased in some ways because I think it's an area from a journalism standpoint that really needs attention. You know, when the BP spill happened, uh, I really kind of anticipated that the networks would spend a little more time uh, as they covered sometimes the lead story from for literally weeks that turned into months in 2010. I, I thought that would be an opportunity to expose the issue and it really nobody really bit on it to, to a great extent at, at the network level. A, a story here and there. I want to be careful too to make sure I emphasize that I try not to be an advocate for uh, restoration per se. It's not my job to say that you know we ought to build a certain island back or that we ought to do a diversion or not do a diversion or this sort of thing. We, we've really tried to. Um, you know, just follow the issue itself and, and to the extent possible, uh, shed light on it. What The more I learn about this area, the more I realize how little I know about this area. It's, it's hydrology and engineering and biology and so many disciplines and marine biology and, uh, you know, uh, so many disciplines of science and, and other areas of expertise that are involved in trying to figure this out. Uh, there's there's no degree for, you know, go go get a degree and write the master plan. It's just, you know, there's there's computer modeling and everything else. So th- that's one thing. I, I, as I joked one time when I gave a speech, the, the most dangerous thing in the world is some reporter who's covered a story enough that he somehow thinks he's suddenly an expert on it. Um, I am not an expert and I try not to be an advocate, but I do think I, I, I guess I would advocate for it as a story. I think it's it's extremely dramatic and important to our future. That that's such a good point, well made about the diversity of the disciplines. We talk about this and and the fact that if the state is doing a billion dollars worth of work, how many jobs that is, and and. But what kind of job could you have? And the answer is anything you want, right? I, I have a PR degree. You have a communications degree, right? And and so there are just so many different disciplines that that 
um, coastal can encounter. There really is something for everybody. But with what you just said, John, about not not advocating for particular things, maybe this is an unfair question, and um, you can reserve the right to not answer if you want. But um, from somebody who's covered this and and has looked at this from so many different angles. Are you hopeful or maybe I shouldn't ask you if you, John Snell, are hopeful, but do you think there is hope out there? Well, I think the sure there's hope out there. And, uh, you know, I think there are all kinds of levels of this about, you know, every once in a while, you know, back to the point about the camp, camp owners and landowners have done enormous, meaningful work building bulkheads or taking other steps to protect their property and, and shield that they, because they have a, a, obviously an interest in doing so, a personal financial interest and emotional interest in doing so. I, I really think what, what the bottom line, you know, is it, a lot of people are skeptical about sea level rise. The seas are rising at, you know, a rate of a, about an inch every, maybe an inch and a half every 10 years, that sort of thing. We've lost about uh, maybe a, a foot to, to sea level rise since, you know, 1870 or whatever your your point is. So if you drive along, you know, one of the lake roads on the North Shore, for example, and and it's got six inches more water than it than it you know can handle before it's not passable anymore. That's sea level rise. Not a lot of sea level rise, but it's a, a little bit. And then when you couple that with the far more dramatic subsidence, the fact that we've sunk maybe three feet or more in some places, the relative sea level rise. Then, then I think it really, you know, starts to resonate with people. Uh, you know, if if these the problem I have sometimes with those of us in the media is we'll throw up a map and say, here's what it'll look like in 2100 if nothing's done. Scientists say, and it's the most extreme, oftentimes the most extreme high uh, scenario for sea level rise, or even the medium. Well, if the low is right, there's a lot more hope. If the high scenario for possible sea level rise turns out to be right. It, there are a lot of challenges, as you folks know just as well or better than I. If if it's on the low end, where, yes, the seas come up, but in a manageable way, uh, where land accretes over time, that sort of thing, then there's, then there's more reason for hope. M- most of our issue um, has, as you know, been sinking land. And I really think that's a big part of it. Um, it is how how much does that happen over a period of time and and i think that's why you run into some scientists who say you know it's 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 worth the fight it's it's not the time to surrender yeah i think um i think hope is such an emotional word um and and maybe you know more of a a technical word would be you know Jacques and i believe in a future with action that there will be action and what that action is and um, what, how far that action can take us, right? That that's the technical term for hope. <laughs> Jacques, would you agree? <laughs> yeah, no, I just say to your point earlier, John, about advocating for the stories, right? As opposed to any sort of solution or any sort of specific, you know, outcome of what, what will happen. I mean, we know regardless of what scenario comes to pl- to play or comes to bear, there will be stories there about human impact, about economies, about you know migration, all of those things, right? And and we often talk about Louisiana experiencing this kind of the most um, the first and maybe most severe because of our sinking land before the rising seas even get here. So you know the stories will continue in in the years and decades ahead. And I think from a journalism standpoint. 
you know, that's what we're, we're hoping is that there are journalists here to do the important work on the reporting to tell the myriad of stories that are going to be involved with, you know, whatever that future is. So um, we appreciate, again, all of the reporting that you've done and the spotlight you've put on, on all of these issues. Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit. Um, we couldn't have you on without talking about one of your, you know, your hobbies, but basically better than any professional photographers I've seen out there. But I do really enjoy following your social media and seeing really beautiful um, photographs of Louisiana's wildlife, our, our swamps and coastal areas. So tell us a little bit about your photography and have you, you know, has that always been something that you've uh, been excited about nature photography, wildlife photography? No. Um, what happened was, um, and thank you very much. It's nice of you. I started going on vacations with my son out West and I bought a little cheap point and shoot camera to take some pictures around, I don't know, 2012 or some 2013. And one day I went out and bought one of those DSLRs um, and started taking pictures with that. And, and I was kind of hooked, but I, I, what, and that's part of the change you talked about with the business is that I, I developed an interest in first landscape and the later wildlife photography and naturescapes and that sort of thing. And you would go out, I would go out and cover a story and maybe take a picture. I remember one day I wanted to get a shot of a welding arc at a certain shutter speed. And I was feeling guilty about that because I, you know, needed to do my job. Well, as the business has evolved, now you would need, now you would be encouraged to go get the welding arc, set up the tripod, take the time, shoot the picture, post it as the shot on the web, post it to social media and all the rest. So the, the, the fact that I do a lot of these stories and, and I now shoot some of my own stories, which is mind boggling to me. If you think about, uh, what I start, the, the environment I started in, um, so they sort of built on one another and and I would uh, the, the fact that I was able to go and and take pictures and go on boat rides and <laughs> they paid me for that suckers um you know kind of fed the the interest on on the two levels but it really just started with uh you know a couple of pictures of of my son out in you know here stand in front of that landmark We've we've had a couple of national park conversations, John and I, about uh, good places to go. So so I do appreciate that too. Um, you don't actually sell the photography, though, do you? No, I had a brief period of time um, where I did it um, ten years ago, but I just got tired of of um, paying my my state sales taxes. You know, at two in the morning, <laughs> it just got uh, when I used to work nights. It just uh, I you could talk to Michael Sherman about tax reform or something about that. Right, yeah. maybe, maybe sometime, maybe down the road. But I'm, I'm my my day job, my my three o'clock in the morning job keeps me a little busy. And I, as I said, I do um, a lot of my own uh, photography, the videography, and so I, I'll just keep it separate and and the other stuff and have it as a little place I go. The the social media stuff, to be honest with you, they that's all a big deal. They want you to post on social media, and I. I prefer not to do president so-and-so or governor so-and-so said this, what do you think? So they, it keeps the bosses off my back if I just post some pictures on Facebook. And I'm, I'm really deeply flattered that people like them. I never expected, if you had told me 20 years ago, I would be posting pictures of, of roseate spoonbills on, you know, face on some, some website somewhere called Facebook. I would have said, what, who, who is this person you're talking about? 
Well, I, I, you know, think maybe the reason they are so popular is because it's not what everyone else is doing and commenting on the news of the day, but it's providing, you know, people with a little bit of beauty and kind of, uh, you know, something that's an escape. So I, I certainly enjoy following your social media and seeing the beautiful photography you put out. And I would encourage others to do the same. Um, I have to ask though, I know you're a bird enthusiast. So, um, you know, we have a fun question on, on this show that we like to ask. I don't know. Birds or oysters <laughs> or potato salad. In and, you know, this is a question I've asked, you know, our most, uh, you know, Eric Johnson, director of bird conservation with, with Audubon and others. So it's a tough question for them, but I expect it will, will be a tough question for you. But what is your favorite um, Louisiana bird species? Roseate spoonbills, the, the Cajun. It's not even, it's not even close. Um, the, uh, I, I think a lot of people know them now. They're, they're a wonderful story driven almost to extinction a century ago for their feathers. And now they, uh, although they are in trouble, as I understand it, in the Everglades, they're expanding their range in Louisiana. The footnote, I would say, we did a story some years back about, and we called it the bald eagle, a Louisiana success story. And a lot of people are unaware that there are, during this time of year, there are more bald eagles in Terrebonne and St. Mary parishes in the Homa and Morgan City area than there are in Yellowstone National Park. And uh, it is, um, they are, there are more bald eagles in Louisiana than any other southeastern state with the exception of Florida. Um, it's a, there are, you know, a few hundred nesting pairs now. That's why, as you both know, if you go to Morgan City one day, you almost can't not see one if you happen to look up at all. It's just a fabulous fabulous story. And it's a story. The other thing I like about it is it says so much about um, America and the spirit. And it's a story that will get um, the most liberal tree hugging environmentalist all fired up and the the patriotic uh, red voter fired up about it. It's it cuts across uh, lines. In that sense, it's kind of it's kind of wonderful, I think. Uh, um, So that's my 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 sort of uh, runner up, if you will. Well, that is a much better answer than Eric Johnson, who says, the last bird that I saw. <laughs> he loves any bird, every bird. He tells the funniest stories about, you know, ooh, the spoonbill, promiscuous. Well, like, I mean, just funny stuff like that. And so I love that answer. There oh, are a couple right. of good camera quotes. What, what's my favorite camera? The one I have with me. Yeah. And then the second one is, what's, what's your favorite picture? I don't know. I haven't taken it yet. <laughs> Good answer. But that's a very good point about bald eagles. We see them when we go out to Davis Pond all the time. But you know what's funny? They have those two nests on I-10 now. And my mom and dad told me just the other day, oh, we saw some going on the one, you know, on the lakeside. You know, we saw some birds in that one lately. So um, that's a pretty visible spot for folks. So it is it is something that folks get to talk about. Well, as we wrap up, John, what, what are you looking forward to in 2021? Um, hopefully getting back to some sense of normal on a personal level, as we all are, um, being around people, uh, in a, in a setting where you're not concerned about somebody being close to you, um, having our folks, you know, I, we're very fortunate. I remind my colleagues and my younger colleagues, we're very fortunate in our position, uh, that we, we have our jobs and we haven't been disadvantaged. I'm looking forward to people maybe getting back to New Orleans in a, in a sense where they can visit, where uh, we're able to, uh, for those folks who have suffered economically, for them to also have some semblance of normal. I think we're all ready for, hopefully, especially the latter part of 2021, maybe it'll happen that quickly. 
definitely something to look forward to. That, that um, wasn't the fun little answer you probably wanted. But no, that, no, it, it was everybody's answer, right? You know, it's it's the Saints win in the Super Bowl. It's us getting to go to a Saints <laughs> game, right? It starts as easy as that. It's a, um, you know, for a place like New Orleans that everything thrived off of being close to another human being. We say that all the time, but if you think about Mardi Gras, you think about Jazz Fest, you think about football games, right? Everything that we did we wanted to do shoulder to shoulder with somebody else, whether it be listen to music or, you know, catch trinkets off of a float. I mean, that's that's what we're built to do. So the same reason why you came to New Orleans and what drew you here and, and why I tell my kids that Mardi Gras is it's just Tuesday everywhere else and how lucky we uh-huh. are. I'm looking forward to that, too. So I think that's the true, honest answer that everybody was going to answer to. OK. Speaking of good answers. OK. <laughs> Well, we wanted to wrap up. We have a coastal stat. I'll let Jacques handle that because surprise, surprise, it's about birds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, thank you again, John, for being on. And and thank you again for shining a spotlight on these important issues. And we look forward to more of the reporting in 2021. Um, Our next episode, we'll actually have Greg Grandy from the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority on just to recap some of the projects and progress that they've made um, in terms of getting restoration and protection projects built. Um, And they sent out a recap that said that they've completed uh, several projects, including the $18.7 million restoration of Queen Bess Island, a 36-acre rookery for brown pelicans and other birds near Grand Isle and Jefferson Parish. Um, They also completed the $35.4 million Rockefeller Refuge Gulf Shoreline Stabilization Project, building three miles of encapsulated lightweight aggregate breakwater structures and protecting approximately 256 acres of marsh. They also began uh, to dredging on Rabbit Island, a major bird rookery in Cameron Parish. So that'll restore 88 acres and it is expected to be completed in February 2021. So exciting to see that progress. Um, and certainly, you know, my hope for 2021 is that we can all get out on a boat together at some time, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, like we used to in the good old days. So why don't you uh, close us out, Simone, with the Coastal Voice of the Week? Yeah, sure. The Coastal Voice of the Week. I grew up on the coast and I want my kids to have that same chance, said Emily in Abita Springs, Louisiana. Just a reminder, you can add your coastal voice at MississippiRiverDelta.org, restore-the-coast. All right. Well, thank you again, John, for being on and thank you all for listening. Um, We're excited to have our 150th episode uh, coming to you later this week um, where we're going to recap progress in 2020. Thank you for listening and we'll see you all later, alligators. Alligators.